According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, the map you're looking at will be useful uh, not only today, but in upcoming classes. For the most part, we've been focused on the Galilean region, which you see there shaded in purple, and that is the longest of his ministry durations. Uh, just in the terms of the number of months, the majority of his three and a half years is actually taken up in the Galilean region. Prior to that, he had a ministry uh, down between Judea and Perea along the Jordan River there on the Judean side in the uh, foothills there when he had a baptism ministry contemporaneous with John the Baptist ministry. Uh, but lately in our Life of Christ series, we've all been up here in the Galilean ministry. Now, things coming up include a Perean ministry, include a uh, a short retreat out to the regions of Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenician regions on the west coast there. And then ultimately, there will be a final Judean ministry centered around Jerusalem, uh, Bethany, other areas there, uh, immediately prior to the cross itself. So that will kind of give you an idea. We'll have some comments this morning on the geography involved. See if I can go ahead and leave that up and running. I can. That's a good deal. And we'll plan on that. Get a slideshow going. Before we actually do the calming of the sea, though, we have some one final parable we want to deal with in uh, parables of the kingdom. There we go. So let's bring that slideshow up. Because we ran out of time, we were dealing with the last parables, five, six, and seven. Uh, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, and the dragnet. And we covered the first two of those, but that's where we ran out of time in our previous session. So I want to jump right back into that outline and then wrap up dragnet, uh, deal with the conclusion of Matthew 13, and then we can cross the Sea of Galilee with a great storm and Jesus falling asleep in the boat. So there's a lot on our plate today. Before we do any of that, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Spirit. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have this morning to assemble together. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our study that you would set aside distractions, the worries, concerns, struggles that we have on a daily basis and take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Drive the, uh, the, the conflicts and circumstances and details of life far away from our thinking. Father, only, uh, only allow it to touch upon our thinking insofar as the teaching of your word can be brought to bear in terms of application. Uh, but Father, otherwise, if it's just simply a test, a conflict, a struggle, then uh, remove it for this hour. Allow us to fix our eyes firmly upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. These are the parables of the kingdom. And there is a short way to get to where we're headed. This is what we're looking at in the hidden treasure. The pearl of great price and the dragnet. We're going to go ahead and cover parables 5, 6, and 7 under a single point of study because of the nature of them, how short they are in rapid fire format, and also because uh, really they are linked. At least uh, 5 and 6 are linked uh, clearly. So let's look at verse 44 of Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
So there's a picture there being presented. Likewise, there's a picture being presented in verse 45, which seems similar, and yet the difference is noteworthy. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. All right, so those two are clearly linked. And then the dragnet is a bit longer coming in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. And when you have those two agains, the again in verse 45, the again in verse 47, those are our text markers, the indicators in the text that we want to link those passages to verse 44, where we have the, uh, the introduction to that paragraph there in verse 44. So verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we'll have to deal with that here this morning. Okay. As we examine it, under subpoint A, these last three parables have no explicit interpretation. In other words, we don't have a passage where uh, the disciples here say, uh, explain to us the parable of the, uh, the pearl, you know, the pearl of great price. We don't have those verses spelled out like we have it spelled out when the disciples say, explain to us the parable of the tares. And he spells it out for them in black and white. Reason why is because we should already be equipped to handle these things based upon the explanations he has given. Their principles should be obvious in the light of the first two parables, the ones that he explained very explicitly. Secondly, point B, the hidden treasure and the pearl. The hidden treasure and the pearl, this pearl of great price, which, by the way, has nothing to do with Mormonism. Somebody asked last week, why, why did I make that comment about Mormonism last week? They didn't understand. Well, beyond the Book of Mormon, there are additional text that they consider to be scriptures as uh, handed down to them by Joseph Smith, one of which is called the Pearl of Great Price. So that's the comment there. There's another one called Doctrines and Covenants. Uh, they're minor texts. They're, they're secondary to the Book of Mormon, but they are clearly, in the Mormon view, considered to be uh, divinely revealed. And so, uh, cl- uh, obviously, though, the Pearl of Great Price in the Mormon perspective has nothing to do with this parable here. <laughs> All right. Not in our biblical perspective anyway. Um, So they're similar, but not identical. They deal with purchases. Remember, the concept of purchase is the image of redemption. It's the idea that we have uh, in terms of everything that's portrayed in the book of Ruth throughout the Old Testament on into the New Testament. The idea of a purchase is the idea of redemption. And so there are similar concepts because there's a purchase being made. In both cases, the purchase price is everything. The purchase price is everything. It is an infinite purchase with an infinite cost. When you stop to consider what it took to redeem you and I out of the slave market of sin, it wasn't cheap. We can lose track of that because for us it was free. For us it's a free grace gift and and we lose sight of the fact that for him it was infinite. For the father it was the sacrifice of his beloved son. And so in, in this parable as the The one making the purchase expends everything. We understand the sacrificial nature of the love that's involved. So in the uh, point of study, then, the hidden treasure and the pearl represent two similar but not identical purchases that the buyer obtains through a total expenditure of all personal wealth. Now, what are the differences? 
What are the differences? The, the setting for the two items. In one, it's the realm, the, the, the venue, the uh, milieu is the technical term, but it's French. I don't like using it. The, uh, the, the venue for the first one is land because it's buried treasure. It's in the earth. It's in the land. The second venue or milieu is the sea. Where, where do the pearls come from? From the oyster. From where? From the sea. And so we've got land imagery. We've got sea imagery. Keep that in mind because that will come up again in the book of Revelation. It's going to come up in the two beasts that arise in Revelation chapter 13. The first beast comes from the sea. The second beast comes forth from the land. And those images, those broad images are very important because uh, they, are, they are indicative. The, the sea, representative of Gentile nations, representative of the, of the world beyond the Jewish nation. Land, though, is very much an image and a picture of Israel. Israel was promised land. Abraham was promised territory within the land. They are an earthly people in the midst of other earthly peoples. Our uh, image, by the way, is uh, typically heaven unless it's in contrast with Israel, in which case it is sea, such as we have here. So what are these items? There's another difference, too, beyond the the milieu, the venue where these things take place, is the immediacy or the delayed nature of the possession. In terms of the treasure hidden in the field, he has found it at a point. However, it must have it had to have been hidden after the discovery and it had his enjoyment of it had to wait his possession of it had to wait until such time as the land itself was obtained. So important that you recognize that. The second treasure, though, the possession is immediate. When he, when he goes and sells all that he has, he bought it, he has immediate possession of the, of the pearl. He does not have to hide it again. He doesn't have to put it on layaway and get it you know, down the road. He's able to purchase it immediately. Whereas the treasure in the land has to be hidden Rehidden, and then it has to be uh, the land itself has to be the ownership of the land has to be secured until such time as that treasure can then be brought forth and the full enjoyment of that treasure can then be exercised. That's a critical difference between verse 44 and verse 45. And so the pictures then, when, once you understand those differences, the pictures become clear and obvious because we're talking about. Uh, Israel, and we're talking about the church. Israel, the hidden treasure, represents Israel. Now, they are redeemed. The purchase has been made in the sense that they've been discovered, yet rehidden. So, redeemed is the picture here. The hidden treasure represents Israel, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but hidden away for a period of time i.e. Romans 9, 10, and 11. That the purpose for Israel is presently hidden. They are presently in a partial hardening, in fact, while the plan of the church is being unfolded. But they are not cast away. They are not forsaken. That plan will be resumed when the times of the Gentiles have run their course. So you see why it's his treasure it has been found, and yet now it has been rehidden until such time as the ownership of the land can be secured. That treasure will not be rediscovered and, and fully enjoyed until such time as the ownership of the land is secured. That is, second advent, the conquest of Armageddon, when the, the son of David 
has victory in the in in the uh, conquest, who has sets up his dominion in Jerusalem. At such point, the hidden treasure can be fully enjoyed. The church, however, is immediate possession. The pearl represents the church redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, obtained for immediate good pleasure. There's no delay. There's no need to hide it. There's no need. Also interesting, there's no need for securing any particular land because the church has no land. The church has no earthly territory. The church has no entitlement to any earthly geography. We are a heavenly people. So far as this earthly geography is concerned, we are sojourners. We are never promised any portion of this present earth or even the future earth. Our home is heaven. Our, our uh, residence is going to be that new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven and is suspended over the earth. What a privilege. Israel has land grant within the present earth and the millennial earth and the new earth. Likewise, Gentile nations will have their portions as well. All right. So those are your pictures. Those are your pictures. The uh, thing that you want to take out of this in terms of application under point C in the kingdom of heaven mystery state, the Lord's plan for Israel is temporarily hidden while he completes the father's plan for the church. The Lord's plan for Israel is temporarily hidden while he completes the father's plan for the church. So the hidden treasure is presently today in 2006 AD. That hidden treasure is still hidden while the pearl is in possession of the Lord. That's the circumstance of the kingdom of heaven mystery state. That's why this is a part of the mystery parables of Matthew 13. This will end at the second advent when that hidden treasure will no longer be hidden, when the mystery state is complete, when the kingdom of heaven is now in a manifest state. And I love the term manifest state. It's unfortunate that it also starts with an M because... The abbreviation KOHMS is already used by Kingdom of Heaven Mystery State. So Kingdom of Heaven Manifest State, I'm going to have to come up with a different term for that. The Kingdom of Heaven um, Fulfilled State, maybe, or something like that. Kingdom of Heaven Realized State, where it is realized literally on the earth. I'll probably go with that when all is said and done. All right, now that gets us finally to the dragnet. What is this dragnet? The dragnet shows the great spiritual fishing ministries. The great spiritual fishing ministries to the Gentiles during the kingdom of heaven mystery state. Dragnet shows the great spiritual fishing ministries to the Gentiles during the kingdom of heaven mystery state. I'll let you write that down and then we'll make comment. Great spiritual fishing ministries. This is a positive thing. We're accustomed to, in secular political terms, fishing expeditions are, tend to be very negative things. It means there's a political pro, uh, party that's trying to drudge up scandal or trying to drudge up something that they can use as a, as a weapon. Or maybe it's a prosecutor on a fishing expedition. Um, they tend to be political. They tend to be underhanded. They tend to be shady. So our terms fishing expeditions in the modern sense, at least if you're politically aware these days, is kind of a negative downer kind of term. Unfortunate. Because biblically, fishing is a great expedition. It's giving the gospel, presenting Jesus Christ to this lost and dying world. 
It's the responsibility that each one of us has as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. But keep in mind, when he told Peter and the rest of those knuckleheads, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, that wasn't during the church age. That was during the stewardship of the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. And ultimately, Israel is supposed to be, as the covenant land nation on the earth, they're supposed to be the ambassadors that go forth with the Great Commission. Sadly, though, at least so far as the Old Testament is concerned, they were not at all gospel-minded. They were not at all missions-minded. Their whole view was, hey, you know what, if the Gentiles want to come to God, they can come to us. They can come because we got the temple, we got the holy place, we got the sacrifices, we got the scriptures. And if a Gentile wants to wants to know about God, but well, then by golly, he can just come to Jerusalem, get circumcised, become a Jew, and, and follow our... And they were not mission-minded in the sense of worldwide outreach, see. And for the, sadly, for the most part, you know what took them global? Persecution, dispersion, where they went out to Babylon, they went out to Assyria, they went out to Greece, they went out to Rome, and they became just as pagan as the nations uh, surrounding them. Now, remarkably, though, you know what they're going to be in the tribulation? Missions-minded. They're going to be evangelistic-minded. In fact, 144,000 of them are going to be spirit-indwelled, empowered, sealed, protected, now, it's not the universal indwelling you and I have, but it is like the Old Testament spirit indwelling where the Spirit of God came upon an Old Testament prophet. The Spirit of God comes upon those 144,000 sealed, protected evangelists. What a ministry. And uh, it's kind of unfortunate that it took tribulation to drive them to that point. And yet, is that not the characteristic nature of Israel's history or the church's history for that matter? church was told to go forth and they sat there until... Saul of Tarsus and other ravagers would decide to drive them out of Jerusalem. You know, they, they weren't exactly uh, hop-skipping out of Jerusalem to go fulfill the Great Commission themselves in the early church, were they? It took persecution to drive them out, and then things like Antioch could get rolling and other things could take place. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea. And this is uh, it's a lot more, uh, in, in terms of bulk, <laughs> you get a lot more fish this way than just simply a single hook on a single line. So if you're sitting on a pier or in a boat somewhere and you've got a single hook on a single line and you cast it out there, well, that's a method of fishing. It's even found in the scriptures. That's how Peter got his tax revenue one time when he was able to pay his tax by a single hook, catching a single fish, pulling the, the, the coin out of there. Well, this, though, is a much larger bulk kind of methodology. Uh, you can catch greater quantities of fish this way, but you also catch other things this way. Right? Like all the... Oh, the horrible, you know, we're doing terrible things with dolphins trying to catch tuna. And then, you know, the, the, the dolphin marchers are out there trying to save the dolphins. Well, that's, that's the nature of dragnet-style fishing. You're going to catch a whole lot of things. And so when the net is filled, you draw it up on a beach, and you've got to now sift through it, sort through it. You're going to have to keep the true fish and then junk and bad fish. And interesting, the term fish isn't used there. The good into containers, the bad they threw away. And that could include fish, seaweed, junk, driftwood, you know, old tires, whatever it is that you get. Uh, you're, you're, you're gleaning the good and, and junking the rest. So it will be at the end of the age. See, this is almost like an anti-rapture. And, and if you think of it in these terms, you'll do yourself a huge favor in Matthew 24. All right? This is like an anti-rapture. Think about the rapture. Lord descends with a shout, voice of the archangel, trumpet of God. The dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught out. Believers are the ones snatched out of the world. And so what's left behind is 
the junk. It's, so the good is removed, extricated, and the rest of the cosmos is left. This is like the anti-rapture. Because at the end of the age, that is at the end of the kingdom of heaven mystery state, the conclusion of the tribulation prior to the inauguration of the millennium, it's the opposite. The regenerate are left on the earth while the junk is removed. The unbelievers are removed. See, like we had earlier in the chapter with the wheat and the tares. Those tares are bundled up and cast into the fire which allows for the wheat then to be gathered into the barn. In other words, believers can enter into the millennial kingdom. And the tares are gathered, snatched, grabbed, raptured, and thrown into the fire. That is, cast into Hades for a thousand years while they await the great white throne judgment. So it, it's like an anti-rapture. It's like, uh, you know, if, if the rapture was designed to snatch believers, this is designed to snatch anything but believers, all the unbelievers, and casting them into the fire. So does that make sense? All right, because if we can get a handle on that in Matthew 13, then 11 chapters from now, we're going to do great. And we're not going to fall into the plot that so many people plunge into. They think that, you know, two men are working in a field, one will be taken, another will be left. And they think, oh, that's a rapture passage. No, it's not. The one taken was the unbeliever thrown into hell. The one left was the believer who endured the tribulation that enters into the millennial kingdom. And if you have a grasp on that, you don't try to shove a rapture into uh, Matthew 24. You don't try to shove a rapture into Matthew 13. Why can't we have a rapture in any of these passages? Thank you. The church is a mystery. In, in fact, it's even called the rapture itself is called a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The rapture is a mystery because it is the closing event of the church, which is a mystery. So nothing in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John can talk about the rapture. Because of the nature of mystery. The closest you get to anything related to the church is a parable of a pearl. And even that you don't understand as the church until such time as the, the doctrine of the church is unfolded. All right. You guys are quick. That's outstanding. I don't even know what I'm doing here. You got it all figured out. So here's the dragnet. Now... Notice what happens, though. There are great quantities that are brought in. And that's the nature of the church age. It's the nature of the tribulation. There are scads of numbers that come to be associated with the, the church. But are they all regenerate? There might be huge numbers, but are they all saved? Right? Same thing in the tribulation. Huge numbers, but how many are truly regenerate? All right. The church in the church age and redeemed Israel in the tribulation of Israel will gather many Gentile fish. I mean, just read in the early chapters of the book of Acts, look how many were added, how many 5,000 souls, 3,000 souls, look how many were added. The great numbers were coming daily. The church in the church age and redeemed Israel in the tribulation will gather many Gentile fish. Again, the idea of Gentiles, are yes, Jews are also getting saved, but the primary emphasis here is, where is that net getting cast? It's getting cast into the sea, representative of Gentile nations. That's right. And what a blessing that we have in the church that Jews and Gentiles alike can be one body in Christ, and uh, what an opportunity we have. That's our age, but likewise in the tribulation. Israel will gather many Gentile fish.
But it's at the end of the age, the fish are going to be sorted. At the end of the age, the fish will be sorted. You know, when you're out there and you're given the gospel and somebody seems to be excited about it and they want to know more and they say, well, where do you come? To, where do you go to church? And can I come with you? And you invite them to church and they come, they come to church. You know, are they, are they, do we know absolutely 100% that they're regenerate? Only God looks at the heart. What if they have other motives or other reasons and they can just come and they, they enjoy the, the, the atmosphere. They like the people are real nice. And, you know, there's, there's earthly reasons for hanging out with, with moral, decent people. Don't even have to be saved, see, to be accepted in a lot of assemblies. In fact, one on my street. <laughs> Salvation is not a requirement for membership. Boggles my mind. Well, we don't want people to feel excluded. We don't want them to feel, uh, you know, like they're not welcome. We want to be embracing. We want everybody to come in and feel welcome. And if, if we can be a nurturing, welcoming, seeker-friendly kind of place, then once they're comfortable here and they're a part of our family, then, you know, hopefully along the line somewhere down the road, then, you know, they'll get saved. So, you know, membership's not required. To, I mean, salvation's not required for membership. Absolutely not. Come on in. Glad to have you. That's a philosophy that uh, is uh, growing more and more common, actually, I sad to say. So when does the sorting take place? The same time that the wheat and the tares are separated, the same time that other things are made clear, the same thing that all the same time that all things are laid bare. See. Armageddon, second advent, when the king himself is seated on the throne, all things then can be laid bare. There's no, no fool in them. There's going to be a crowd that will try. They'll jump up there and say, oh, Lord, Lord. But they're not regenerate. They're not regenerate. All right, now the conclusion. Some people number this as an eighth parallel, uh, parable. But it is actually a conclusion, concluding remarks. Uh, it does use the language of a simile. He uses the term like. And so there's a simile that's here in his conclusion. And uh, we'll examine it. If, if you want to think of it as parable eight, that's fine. Um, but he finishes up here the, the, uh, at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. Say, this is the opportunity the teacher has the, at the end of a Bible class to stop and review to say, do you have any questions? Do you understand these things? Is there anything that's not clear? Can we follow up? You needed follow up on two of those parables. I gave that to you. You didn't need follow up on five of them. Are you okay with those? And they said, yes. And Jesus had said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So he dismisses them with a final simile, with a final metaphor. In conclusion, so point eight in the outline, Christ concludes his message to the disciples and informs them that their new ministry will be to bring forth treasures new and old. That's their role as disciples. It'll be their role as apostles. It's truly our role as church age saints because we also are disciples. Christ concludes his message to the disciples and informs them. That their new ministry, notice he calls it here, 
Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, that is, believers in the kingdom of heaven mystery state, where the emphasis is on studying and applying the word of God. We gave that to you back in the very first parable. In the very first parable. In fact, I'll review that here this morning. Informing them that their ministry will be to bring forth treasures both new and old. It's going to be a feature of this kingdom of heaven mystery state. Like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. The treasure that I will talk about this. All right. If I can back up to. That's it. I don't know which one it is. So I'll just. There's the parable of the sower. There it is. The underlying principle. The underlying principle of the kingdom of heaven mystery state is the principle of learning the word of God and bearing fruit. When he began these parables in Matthew 13, he talked about the sower. He talked about the soil. We want to make sure that we're not roadside believers. We're not rocky soil believers. We're not thorny soil believers. But we are good soil believers so that we can take in the word of God so that we can bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. We want to be good soil believers bearing fruit. So we, as, as this chapter begins with this, begins with that parable, and, and we understand that underlying principle, we then can come to the last part of this message where he says, have you understood these things? And then he leaves them with his final uh, simile here. Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So the emphasis on disciple. Again, what are we doing here? We're learning. We're disciples. We're learners. So what are these things new and old? Well, first of all, A, when he asked, have you understood these things? They said, yes. The disciples claimed to have understood the Lord's parables. They claimed to have understood the Lord's parables. Now, some of those parables restated Old Testament truths. But some of those parables began to introduce new things. Obviously, the pearl is something new. The pearl is not something they're comfy or familiar with from the Old Testament. In fact, the pearl is going to have to wait for its full understanding until such time as mystery doctrine can unfold and the idea of a bride is, is declared, the idea of the church is then made clear. That's something new. But the idea of the treasure hidden in the field, the idea of Israel being his redeemed possession, that's nothing new. The Lord's been talking about Israel as, as his redeemed possession ever since he redeemed him out of Egypt. See, so that's not a new concept, that's something old. The pearl is something new. So the idea of something new and old, when we recognize what is the provision for the kingdom of heaven mystery state, we see under point B. The role of the disciples in the kingdom of heaven mystery state is to accurately teach the truth of God's word through a synthesis of the New and Old Testaments. Through a synthesis of the New and Old Testaments. 
In other words, we must bring out of our treasure things both new and old. If you are never in the Old Testament, you've got a flawed ministry. And I, I, can, I know pastors that never teach the Old Testament, never touch the Old Testament. I know churches that never go to the Old Testament because, well, we're a New Testament church. And the only thing they hit on are the Gospels and the, and the Epistles. See? And the Gospels, they tend to teach incorrectly because the Gospels are Old Testament. <laughs> at least in their setting, at least in their primary application. If not their textual placement in our Greek uh, New Testaments. And they never go to the Old Testament. They never bring forth out of their treasuries the things old. So they're like crippled scribes that are only bringing things forth out of the treasury, only the new things out of their treasuries. Now, your treasury is important. because That's where your heart is. There your treasure will be also. The treasury is your possession. The treasury is your storehouse. In other words, you can't bring it out of your treasury until you put it there in the first place. I can show you my childhood stamp collection. Because I still have it. I cannot show you my childhood um, butterfly collection. I never had one. And since I never had one, I can't bring it out of my treasury to show it to you. I can't show it to my children. I can't show it to the next generation. I can't show it to others. I can't relate how it's been a blessing for me. Because it never has been a blessing for me. So in other words, first you have to hide the word in your heart. That's your treasury. Things both old and new. You've got to have the synthesis of the Old Testament doctrines, the New Testament fulfillments. In other words, the whole counsel of God's word. That is our privilege as church age saints. The Old Testament prophets couldn't have even dreamed about this. And yet that's our blessing. By the way, tribulational saints will have that same blessing. They'll get to become New Testament expositors. Not only are Jewish people going to get saved, but the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to have both Old Testament and New Testament Christian scriptures to use in their tribulational witnessing. They'll be able to bring forth treasures both new and old. So in in order to bring it forth out of your treasury, it's got to be there in the first place. You see, you've got to be a student. You've got to be a disciple. Now, the use of the term scribe here is interesting. Because it reflects a change, something that happened in between the Testaments. And it's really extraordinary and it's something that, that we can relate to, but it's also something we've got to guard against because this is where pride comes in. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, uh, it's described as kind of like Pharisees, it's kind of like Romans, it's kind of like, you know, a lot of things that just all of a sudden when you flip from Malachi to Matthew and you start reading, you're like, whoa, where'd these guys come from, Right? All of a sudden, you're in a Roman Empire now. You've got centurions. You've got, you got Pharisees and Sadducees and, and scribes. A lot of things, there's, in the 400 years between Testaments, a lot of things happened, including the ascendancy of scribes, the ascendancy of the Pharisees, who were largely scribes, the idea that a believer could become expert in the Word of God by studying, by learning, by memorizing. By copying texts. You know, if you think about it, what a, what a tremendous opportunity to learn the Word of God. Volunteer to copy some scrolls. You need some scrolls copied? Great. And I'll have this scroll here, and I'll be writing this scroll here. And in the process, I get to learn God's Word. What an opportunity. That's why, uh, you know, in, the, in uh, Ukraine, um, 
the greatest translator they have over there that, that Jim Myers has over there in, in uh, Kiev. The, the, the day communism ended, the day that the, the Iron Curtain came down and freedom started coming in and missionaries started coming in, she volunteered with every missionary she could find and said, let me be your interpreter. Everything you teach in, in English, I'm going to just be your parrot. I'm going to repeat it in Russian. I'm going to repeat it in Ukrainian, whatever you want, because she wanted to learn the word of God. And so by listening and repeating, listening and repeating, listening and repeating for every missionary and teacher she could find, she learned a lot. What an opportunity. And she learned from guys like Robbie Dean and George Meisinger and, and all kinds of solid Bible teachers that went over there. She's had some solid doctrine. And the fun thing, of course, she's very humble and very uh, respectful and so forth. But you know she's got the doctrine of residency. She could teach things, all kinds of things. And that's the best part. <laughs> Kept me out of trouble in a couple of places. I started to say something, and she said, did you mean this? And I go, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. See, so she had the doctrinal frame of reference to say, you know, I can translate that, but I think this is what you wanted to say. But she was so respectful, she asked me first. She said, are you trying to say this? Or are you trying to say something else? Because Dr. Meisinger didn't teach it that way. I said, yeah, yeah, okay, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, like, like Dr. Meisinger, that's what I wanted to say. I just didn't come out very well. So she says, okay, just making sure. And then when she put it into Russian, it, it came across orthodox. You know, it came across right. So these scribes then became experts. These Pharisees became experts through copying the Scriptures, through memorizing the Scriptures, through learning the Word of God. And unlike the priesthood where if you weren't born to a priest, you weren't going to be a priest. If you weren't born as to a Levite, you weren't going to be a Levite. So here's a way that just, you know, Gary from Gad could come along and he loves Jesus and he wants to learn. So he starts copying scriptures down. He becomes an expert in the law. He becomes a scribe. And that, keep that in mind. Now, that's a feature in between the Testaments and they're, they're featured prominently in the Gospels. Now, in the Gospels, by and large, it's kind of a negative thing because these guys have become so prideful, so controlling. And that's what happens. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so we want to be on guard against that. But they are called scribes here. Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom. And that is a scribe. Okay, you might be a Bible expert. You're, you're, you, you have intense knowledge of, of scriptures, but you're still humble enough to know that you're a disciple. You're a student. And so if you're both a scribe and a disciple then that means you haven't plunged into that pride which puffs up. That you have the knowledge combined with the humility that means you can bring forth the treasures in, in an edifying way. And that's what we're called upon to do. We're called upon to be Bible teachers. We're called upon to be, first of all, Bible students who can then become Bible teachers by bringing forth out of their treasury. So this is the role of disciples in the kingdom of heaven mystery state. And the neat thing is, is, is it limited to just in the church age? Is that limited to pastors? You've got to be a pastor. You've got to go to seminary before you're allowed to share anything from your treasuries? Of course not. You have your treasury, same as I have my treasury. You take in the living, abiding word of God. You hide it within your heart. You store it away and bring it forth. Share it with your children, your grandchildren, anyone who wants to know. Bring forth your treasuries. Become expert in the scriptures proficient in the scriptures and you can call yourself a scribe a church age scribe but don't lose your humility because you will never stop being a disciple in the moment a pastor thinks he's done being a, a student 
He's just destroyed any fruitfulness I'll ever have as a, as a teacher. See. So uh, you have the principles of it there. That's not only is that characteristic of our church age, but that's uh, that's going to be characteristic of the tribulation as well, particularly because they're going to be so persecuted. They're going to be so underground. They're going to be, you know, they're not going to be able to go to Dallas Seminary. They're going to be largely self-taught or they're going to be taught by faithful men, teaching faithful men, teaching faithful men. They're going to be teaching in homes. They're going to be in catacombs. They're going to be hidden away. They're going to be bringing forth out of their treasuries. It's going to be the nature of the underground uh, remnant of the regenerate during the uh, during the uh, dominion of 666. All right. Well, then that concludes Kingdom of Heaven parables. The um, next item is calming of the sea. Peace be still. So now for this, we actually back up to Matthew 8. Does that bug you? Matthew is horribly out of, out of order. Matthew never intended for his gospel to be a sequence like Luke did. Uh, so Luke is fairly sequential, extremely sequential. Mark is fairly sequential. Matthew is awful. Let's back up to Matthew 8. And then one thing you can do between now and uh, next week is actually read all these texts. Of course, with a paper Bible, you're limited to one place at one time. When you have software available, you can do all kinds of fun things. You can have a Matthew window, a Mark window, a Luke window. You can have all New American standards across the top. can't do that in a paper Bible unless you actually have three New American Standard Bibles. Uh, and then you got your Greek text all across the bottom. Or uh, earlier I had them kind of stretched down like this. I like that better. It gives you more to look at. Anyway, you can do things like this. You can compare them that way. Show them in parable, in, in parallel, and uh, work your way through. You'll find that they are largely uh, identical with only slight vocabulary differences. Uh, most especially Luke's vocabulary is, is very Gentile in its orientation. And uh, we'll have some things to say about that. And uh, you have your maps that uh, were graciously printed off for us. So you have, put this back up, more of what we're going to be dealing with in, and I should have had these printed off in previous classes too, because we've been so locked in on Galilee, maybe it's not as, as vital. But coming up, we've got the retreat to Phoenicia, the trips back and forth across the sea. How many trips does he make from left to right, from right to left? How many times is he zipping back and forth, you know? And not every time is he in a boat. <laughs> you know, there's one time he actually walks across. Scares them to death when he gets halfway through. and So we'll deal with that. Uh, and then, what are these different regions? Why is it? What is this Decapolis thing? Why were the Samaritans stuck in between the Jews and, and, and the, Galilean, the Judean Jews and the Galilean Jews? Why were those Samaritans stuck in there? A lot of the geographical study is going to become vital for us uh, as the crucifixion ap approaches. Why is it that Herod isn't in charge anymore? Herod the Great, well, he's dead. What about his sons? What are they in charge of? Well, one of them's in charge of Galilee. Uh, Philip is in charge of uh, Herod Antipas in Galilee. Uh, Philip is in, in uh, uh, where Caesarea Philippi is up there. There's another son over there. There's, uh, but Judea itself isn't under a Herodian son anymore. Judea is now uh, under the proconsul. Judea is a direct Roman province. They've got a governor now, a fellow named Pontius Pilate. Well, why did that happen? 
See, a lot has taken place in between the uh, the birth of Christ, where Herod was in charge of everything, to now the ministry of Christ, where we actually have a Roman governor in uh, lives out here by the sea, but spends a lot of time in Jerusalem because that's where those rebelling Jews are. Those stiff-necked rebelling Jews. And did you know? You thought Abilene was in Texas, didn't you? <laughs> Calming the sea. As you do your reading this week, as you do your reading this week, and I'm going to let you go a few minutes early because I just, in my mind, 10 minutes is to start this is not worth it. Um, when he says, peace be still, is he talking to the sea? Is he talking to those knuckleheads that are moaning and crying and, oh, we're going to die? All right? Just give you something to ponder. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. We rejoice at how faithful you are day by day and moment by moment. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.